It's been a kind of a long week. Uh, I was in South Carolina earlier in the week and then Nevada um, at the back portion of this week. I don't know if any of you saw the Drudge Report or Reuters or Yahoo, but uh, our church uh, made the front page of, of uh, the Drudge Report and also Yahoo. Uh, and I, I don't know if you realize this, but you are now members of a mega church. That's pretty, uh, I, you know, I called Rick Warren to let him know I'm gunning for him. One of the reasons why I think that they did that narrative is because they couldn't explain how we had 600 volunte- 650 volunteers in an election with a church of 400 on a Sunday, and today's been light. And, um, and I told them, I said, at the peak of the campaign, I, I would guess maybe 100, 125 are from the church. They, they, they couldn't understand that narrative that the community would come out in such a drove to help. So they, they had to change the narrative a little bit to, to fit what they were trying to do. She did her best. She, she, she listened, but she's... You know, you just got to be patient, and uh, you take it as you get it. But I, uh, they, they describe what we're doing, and, and so um, a lot of things are happening from this little fellowship, and I'm so grateful to have you all and your support and the encouragement. So, um, and that's, so engaging in that, one of the things we're going to do today is we're going to be taking a look at Romans chapter 2. We've been going through the book of Romans, but before you turn there, look at me. Uh, Romans chapter 2 is not a real exciting Christmas message. As a matter of fact, it is, it's a difficult passage to get through. It's like, a, it's like listening to a lawyer um, talk about legal briefs. Not as briefs, but legal briefs. It's just not, I mean, the other would be kind of exciting. I just wouldn't, but the legal, I, I don't even know where to go with that. But it's, it's, a, it's an exhausting passage in some regards. And, um, and then to tie it in with Christmas, I've been struggling over this uh, message, and I've been reading um, a number of books by Francis Schaeffer. I've been reading another book called The Great uh, Christ Comet, um, which fascinating to me. I've been so blessed by, um, and I'm going to try to, to the best of my ability, tie it all in this morning. Um, so let's stand for the reading of the word, Lord. I know I said we're in Romans 2, but what we're going to read this morning is going to be Luke chapter 2. So turn to Luke 2. And please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. It'll make sense, trust me. I don't know how, but it will. Maybe it won't, doesn't matter. I'm still here. <laughs> oh boy, tough crowd. Luke chapter two, verse one. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governor, uh, governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of, and you guys say those next two words, great joy. There you go. Great joy, which will be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. I pray you'd encourage your people. And I pray, Lord, today, this third week of Advent, Godet Sunday, meaning rejoice or to have joy, that we would understand that and we would apply it. So God, guide us through Romans and Luke and Matthew and Revelation. Tie it all together, Holy Spirit, in a way that only you can. And so Lord, we ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please be seated. So as I said, it's the third week of Advent. Advent means preparing for the coming of someone important. We have the Advent calendar, as Tom spoke of. We gave um, Advent devotionals that you can use with your families, and this third week of Advent changes a little bit. Uh, It's the idea of the spirit of joy that begins to come into the world, and that's what the word Godet means. In in Latin, it means rejoice. It means to have joy, and it's this uh, joyful spirit that marks the third week of Advent, and they use a pink candle in the Advent wreath, uh, and it's usually done the last eight days before Christmas. And, and the previous weeks of Advent, we're dealing with prophetic you know, prophecies of Christ's coming and this idea of waiting that we went through. But now we come into this, this, this hint of his, the beginning of his life and what it means to us as believers. And, and the theme of the third week of Advent is joy, this idea that we prepare our hearts and ask God for his grace, and we do this with joy. In him is the fullness of joy. And, 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 and joy is different than happiness. Happiness is dictated on your circumstances, and, and joy is a perspective. Um, the Lord will keep thee in perfect peace, whose mind is steadfast on thee. And then the other thing that you see in relation to joy is that, you know, uh, one of the, the, the powerful pictures is God will, will, will uh, give you a perfect peace uh, that we, we, we looked at earlier, that um, you'll be anxious in nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication. God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, that, that um, your circumstances will not dictate your joy, because your perspective will be such that all things are working together for good with those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so we're going to take a look at this concept of joy, because the reign of God is close at hand. And, and there's, we're going to go on a little bit of a trip. Um, we took a look at the story in Luke of the Christmas story, and we see these shepherds guarding their flocks at night. And, and a sign appears to them. Now, this sign has taken on a whole new meaning to me. I was given a gift of a book called The Great Christ Comet um, by Joe here in the front row. And, and um, it is one of the most amazing works I've ever had the privilege of reading. Uh, this man does a phenomenal job at breaking down the, what is considered to be the star of Bethlehem. And uh, we sing of it. We, we're all aware of it. It's present in our culture it's waning because we're, we're not a, a God-centered culture anymore. But he takes a look astronomically as to what this star could have been. And he goes through a, a biblical exegetical study of, of prophetic writings to come to an understanding that, 
that the star of Bethlehem wasn't a star, it was a comet. And um, he points this out historically and lays it out, and it was actually a birth announcement. You're going to see the Magi that we're going to read of in, in Matthew chapter 2, that they followed this star. And, and we're going to go step by step through this passage of Scripture. But before we do that, I did read to you about this idea of joy that the angels declared uh, to the shepherds. But also I want to read to you out of Matthew chapter 2 with the Magi. Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So these magi were astrologers. Now astrologers look up at the night sky and they see, uh, they see the constellations and, and they, they give a sign to each of the constellations. There's 12 of them and we see that in our own calendar. Uh, you're going to have Pisces and Libra and, and Leo and they're all in the night sky. And these astrologers... Can, can see events occurring and, and you can read your, your, you know, your uh, horoscope out of astrology. They, they, were, they were pagans of a sort, but they, they read the stars. So in a sense, they were, they were probably astronomers understanding the stars, and then they were astrologers to ascribe, uh, man, we're busy today. A lot of kids crying over there. So they, they, they were astronomers, they were able to read the stars, and they were astrologers in that they, they uh, projected on this a story and tried to understand events that were occurring. And so here are these magi, and we think that there's three of them. Well, magi traveled in, in, in big groups. Uh, nowhere is there three. We only say there's three because there's three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but there was, there was quite a few magi that came, and they came in a procession that was very long. And so... Uh, these wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Verse two said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star, his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. So they see the astrological uh, picture and they see this sign and, and with their astronomy, they, they put it all together, and then they come and they read the ancient scriptures of the Hebrews, and they say, well, it's got to be Bethlehem, because this is aligning with Pisces and Virgo, and you've got, and he, he goes through the whole detail in his book, but it's all aligned, and here it is shining, and it's this comet coming in this direction that lays through one of the constellations, and they follow it. So they go to the ancient scriptures of the Hebrews, and they, they coordinate that this is Bethlehem, because there's prophetic scriptures, and they, they declare this. And then verse 6, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, quoting out of Micah 5, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me so that I may come and worship him also. He didn't want to worship him. Matter of fact, he wanted him dead. And he killed all the children of that age. And we know that Mary and Joseph went to Egypt and were safe there during this period of time and stayed there over a thousand days in, in Egypt. When they heard the king, they departed. Uh, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. So again, we see this, this theme of the, uh, of the third week of Advent of joy. 
They see this star, they see this birth announcement, they, they see this astronomical and astrological sign and they marvel at it. They, they take the ancient scriptures and even to the point where Herod himself is like, this is crazy. Where is this Christ child? I don't want anyone vying for my kingdom. He lies to them and, he is, and they, they know this too. They never go back and tell him where the Christ child is. Mary and Joseph warned by an angel, they leave and, and Christ is protected. And it's a fascinating story. And everyone marvels at the star, and we've tried to say, well, it's Haley Bop or Haley Comet or all that. This, I, I want to tell you right now, it's, it's a tough read, but it is phenomenal in its, in its astronomical layout. This man is highly educated. You'll be blown away by it, the great Christ Comet. I was up most of the night reading it, and I was blown away by it. And he ties in both of these passages with Revelation chapter 12. And you think, Revelation 12, what, what in the world? Why, why would we go to Revelation for a Christmas story? Revelation 12 is fascinating because he is taking Revelation 12 and he is laying out the constellational uh, lineup of what is occurring, reading the night sky, seeing exactly what the Magi saw and, and, and what is being declared in Revelation chapter 12. Let me read it to you. Verse 1, it says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. And, and this is, you're going to see all this lineup as he lays it out in detail with the moon under her feet and her head, a garland of 12 stars. These are 12 constellations. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and seven diadems on his head. Uh, This is um, uh, uh, Hydra. So you see this. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. This is a rebellion of Satan himself. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. There you see Herod. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, a scepter of iron, which is the same word in that language of of comet. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed uh, her there 1,260 days. This is their time in Egypt. War broke out in heaven. Verse 7, and Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, and he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night have been cast down, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. This is an intense passage that in its initial reading, you're like, wow, that's heavy. It is. But this is a depiction of what happened on, on the night where these magi and the, and the shepherds saw this, this sign, this astrological and astronomical sign. They were blown away by it. Here you see a war raging in the heavens, Herod wanting to kill the Christ child, and the Magi and the shepherds rejoicing. The Magi and the shepherds rejoicing. Pagans, uh, dis, uh, distraught and disconnected and, and marginalized, these folks see this sign and they, they act upon it and they go to find the Christ child. Uh, the author also gives a couple of Old Testament passages, and let me read these to you. This is out of Numbers 24. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. 
Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We read last week Isaiah 9, 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon them, a light has shined. And so this is, this is the great Christ comment by Colin Nickel. And he shares this insight and it's very profound and powerful. Now, all that being said, we still are in Romans chapter two. How do we tie these two together? It's not a springboard effort. I think the two, you know, the best illustration of the Bible is the Bible itself. We've been going through the book of Romans. And one of the things that we've laid out for all of us is this understanding that God says there are none righteous, no, not one. You see, we are in a cosmic battle for the hearts and the souls of men, as you can see in Acts chapter 13, when the apostle Paul and Barnabas uh, were, were vying for the mind and the soul of Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of the, of, of the island of Cyprus, the governor of Cyprus, a political office. And you had Bar-Jesus, a false prophet who was a sorcerer, and they're both contending, and Paul and Barnabas led led Sergius Paulus to Christ. Every day you walk out of the, the, the doors of this building, you walk out to contend for the hearts and the minds of men and women. But we're in an epic battle, never before seen on the face of the earth, that as we are, are, are watching our nation implode, in the sense that we have removed any lawgiver or supreme lawgiver, and as I've said often, that when I did my oath of office, I didn't put my hand on the Bible and raise my right hand. Instead, I just recited an oath before the city clerk. And because there are no longer any moral absolutes, uh, everyone is allowed to do what seems right in their own eyes. And so we, we have this, this idea of relativism. And relativism, as we've studied going through Romans 1, that when you take away absolutes and there are no moral foundations remaining, what happens is a government has a balance between liberty and license, liberty and license. And with this liberty, this freedom, you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free, you now have license. And the license is your heart is governed by God. We're a nation that's very fascinating and that we believe that, we, that these inalienable rights have been endowed by our creator and we're accountable to a God. We're accountable, excuse me, to God. And, and, and our souls are governed by him, so we have greater liberty because we have less government because mankind has no need for that. But we've removed God from the equation, from our edifices, from our schools, from our places of, of business. And now what's happening, and you're seeing this, is chaos begins to rise because people take that license to do with what they seem is right in their own eyes. And so chaos begins to reign. When chaos reigns in a culture, the government of that culture will sway towards an authoritarian form of government, whether it be socialism, fascism, or communism. We sway to that. The government becomes larger because all the people are afraid because that license has turned into chaos. People are scared of what happened in San Bernardino to happen in Thousand Oaks. And so we give up our liberty for the sake of security and we end up getting neither. The government grows larger. We become subjects. We lose our liberty. And these things are taken away because mankind is removed in absolute. And so the authoritativeness comes that, that it's the survival of the fittest and an elite class begins to rule mankind. And this is the nature of man. And so we're losing what was been for 239 years on the face of the earth, the, the freest country ever experienced. An unbelievable amount of wealth has been generated. We have more Nobel Peace Prize winners. We have, uh, we, we've written more symphonies. We have more patents than any other place on the face of the earth. And that's being taken away. And we're watching as that's imploding. And so you go through Romans 1, and we talked about this idea of orientation, where you, you orient to the, to the east, the, the rising sun, you know where west is, and this orientation. 
It's, it's the order. It's the schematic. And we saw in, in Romans 1 that this, this shame, the word shameful, that men doing with men what they should be doing with women is, is a shameful act. And, and the word is, is ashkemezon, which just simply means it, it's, 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 um, it's against the schematic. And our orientation is off. We talk about sexual orientation. Our orientation is not by the S-U-N, but our orientation is to come by the S-O-N, the Son of God. That we align ourselves with the supreme lawgiver, as the Jews did, the supreme lawgiver, that we're accountable to him. Well, what Paul does in Romans 2, and then goes into chapter 3, Romans 2 is this, this legal brief where, where Paul lays out and he says, everyone's under the law. Everyone's under the law. And you go, what about the, you know, the, the tribesmen in, in the deepest part of, of the Amazon or in the Congo that's never heard of the gospel? It doesn't matter we're all under the law. We have some sort of a law we establish for ourselves in any culture that we, we reside in, and all of us break that law. And we all have a conscience, and we're aware of those things. And so what, God is, what Paul is saying is, is God is the supreme lawgiver. Every man is without excuse. We all know that there's a law. We all know we're accountable to the law. Now, we can try to rewrite the law, remove God from it, write our own narrative, come up with some sort of fanciful idea that we, were, we just happened by some chaotic cosmic disorder, and poof, there was man. We came out of a, 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 a pimple on, on a frog, and here we are. And, and, and with that, we have come to a place where we've removed God from the equation. Well, we're reaping what, we're, what we've sown. We're reaping what we've sown. And, and, and this is where we are. In mankind, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more, we're starting to realize this isn't working. And God is calling us to account. But before we can ever right the ship and get our orientation on the SON, we all have to understand something based in Romans 2. And Paul takes time to lay this out. That nobody can keep the law. The law doesn't bring righteousness. All have failed. Everyone struggles. And, and if you say you haven't, just give me some time. I, I will show you. And ultimately, the things that we think in secret will be revealed in the, the thoughts of adultery and all that stuff. That'll be revealed. Just because you can pull something off in front of me to make yourself look better than you are, the reality is, for all have failed. All have sinned. Sin means missing the mark. We're not perfect. And Paul says, by, by the Holy Spirit that this idea that we're all under the law and God is just and there will be a judgment. And people go, oh, God's not a judging God. There's not going to be a judgment. He can't be merciful and just if he's not a judger. People don't like judgment. I don't. There's nobody in the room who wants God to judge them. Do you want justice from God or do you want mercy? I don't know about you. I'd love to have mercy. Now I want justice for the people who wronged me. But I want mercy for me. And, and are there things that require prosecution? Do you think that what those two folks did in San Bernardino require that they be judged? Is there such a thing as evil? Well, people struggle with that concept. And, and because to say evil exists means that God, good exists. Oh, 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 that means God exists. And God is a judger of evil. And we're all complicit. In some capacity, we're held re- accountable and responsible for what occurs. You gossip, you slander, you lie, you cheat, you steal, you, you lust, whatever it is. It breaks down culture, society. We're not governed by God. We've lost our orientation. We've lost our bearing. We've lost the order of what he had designed. And, and now there's chaos. And as chaos reigns, Paul just takes chapter 2 to lay out everybody is under the law. And everybody's failed to keep the law. And the wages of, of failure, the wages of sin is death. It's cosmic treason. And there is a judgment. 
We'd like to avoid it. Listen, I tell my Mormon friends, uh, and I call them brothers and sisters in faith, not the faith I hold, but I tell them, I go, yours is a real, you have an easy, easier cell. You have three heavens and no hell. I have a heaven and a hell. If there was any passage I'd like to take out, it'd be the hell passage. It's, a, it's tough. Because we, we somehow think God is good. How could there be a hell? I, I, it's because I don't think we understand how bad evil is. Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. And, and the Bible says it's not for lack of evidence that we reject faith in Christ. It's because we love our sin more than we love God. We want to justify our actions and we don't want to be accountable to God and we want it to all be fluffy and nice, but that's not fair. He's a God of mercy and he's a God of justice. But for mercy to exist, grace comes out of mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Well, then somebody has to get that. Who gets it? Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Christ takes the penalty, we get the blessing. He's merciful, which means he's not going to give us what we deserve, but he's also just, which means somebody has to pay the penalty for the window that was broken. Who's going to pay for it? I broke it. I don't have the money to pay for it. Christ comes in and pays for it. Propitiation puts it on our account. Paul says this in Romans 3 when he says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is being revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. He says, therefore, in verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law, there's knowledge of sin. We know we've blown it when we can't keep the law. The law doesn't bring righteousness. You're not special because you're more moral. Really? You're not special because you're more moral. I have no doubt you're more moral than I am. There's, you wouldn't have to argue that one. I got you beat. Maybe I'm just a little more honest. I, I live with me. I know how vile I am. The Christian's flesh is just as vile as the pagan's flesh. We're not ordered by God and wake up and align ourselves with his desires. We're all going to struggle. It takes me, you know, light speed to go from, from spiritual to fleshly. I guess I'm the only one. I thought maybe some of you would be into it, but maybe not. But Paul says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is being revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What he's saying is there's, there's two groups of people. There's those who recognize that they failed and there's those who are prideful. There are those who say, you know, I'm a pretty good person. Well, I would just simply say this to all of you. Say you're a good person. How many times a day does a good person fail? I have no idea that you're good compared to me, but I'm not the standard. God is. His word is very clear. We could try to rewrite the scriptures and remove moral absolutes and what he's saying. And listen, there's certain passages of scripture I'd love to bypass, but that's not how it works. You don't get to take the parts you like and throw out the parts you don't. It's the whole counsel of God's word. And the minute that we say that the Bible is no longer inerrant, we have no foundation. That's what happened in the 30s in Germany, which was a hotbed of the Reformation. They removed the inerrancy of Scripture, and they had the, 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 the higher criticism in the seminaries. And within 80 years, Germany went from being the hotbed of the Reformation to being responsible for the death of 50 million people. And it went to a fascist form of government because chaos ruled, and we longed to have some sort of authority. And so man came in, and man's vile. And those, those governments that have removed God from the equation are responsible for billions of deaths upon the face of the earth. Cambodia! Catherine's here because of a godless government. And we, we want to we blame Christianity and we say the Crusades and the Inquisition. You know how many people died in the Crusades and the Inquisition? First of all, the Crusades was a response from invasion. 
And the Inquisition, let's just, let's, let's just be generous. 100,000? Salem witch trials, although it was ended by pastors, it was started by a Christian community. And, and less than 25 died, if that. And that's, that's a very generous number. So you, you calculate, well, what, what happened in Northern and Southern Ireland had nothing to do with religion, but okay, let's throw that in. Even just saying it's, it's Christianity responsible for this, this, and this. And, and I love how they're blaming the, the shooting and, and the Planned Parenthood on a Christian. That guy, what, what? I haven't heard one testimony of the man. All I know is he's just whacked. And the man who died, the police officer who was protecting him was a Christian, pro-life. He died protecting the people from him. Nobody says that. But billions have died in governments that have removed God from the equation. We so want to make God what we want him to be, but he is who he is. And his word reveals who he is. And you can't skip that. You want to make the Bible what you want it to be, but you can't. It is what it is, and it's true, and it's inerrant. Jesus said, my word is true. If you remove that, what is your absolute? And so as we go through this, Paul points this out, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What he's saying is, if you're all going to agree that you have failed, if you're all going to agree that you've committed cosmic treason, if you're all going to agree that, you, you, that the law has pointed out your iniquity, I, there's hope for you. And that hope is going to be found in repentance and receiving the gift of God's justice by his son paying the penalty for our sins. There's no other way around it. Christ didn't come to give a moral order and to be sweet and fluffy and a little baby in a manger. He died a brutal death on a cross. And the cross was so brutal because our sin is ugly. We like to dress it up. It's not, an, it's, it's not adultery, it's an affair. It's, it's, not, it's not killing, it's, it's a choice. It's, it, it, it's not sodomy, it's a lifestyle. Dress it up all you want, but we, we're all guilty. And I know that's hard to accept. I'm not here to browbeat anyone. Please understand that. See, this is, this is how we transition, and we see this transition into Luke chapter 2 and, and Matthew chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 12, the transition is this. God took the most amazing birth announcement ever conceived and presented in the history of the world. A comet. You read this book and it's a line and it's fascinating. And you have historical books that, that align with it. And you have Chinese books and all kinds of things pointing this out. Astrological charts, astronomical charts. I mean, it is, it is such an amazing scientific outline that will blow your mind. It's a hard read. And here this comet is shining through this, this, the, the constellations and the astrological alignment and declaring this. And these magi so blown away by it that they travel thousands of miles to get to this location as pagans to what in the world could this be? And, and it appears at night in accordance with Isaiah 9 that, that those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. I love that he appeared at night because he came into the darkness of our soul. We love the enlightenment and somehow we throw off the constraints and, and God has suppressed us from really achieving our, our under, you know, the understanding of humanities. I'm all for humanities. I, I love mankind. I want to see man flourish. And I think that, that God is inspiring to that. But I don't believe in, in humanism where man is the center of all the earth. 
And so, so with this understanding, God lays this out and, and, and we see this, this birth announcement that is fascinating. But you know what's fascinating about it in relation to Romans 2 and 3? As I said, the room's divided. There are those of you who recognize that you need a savior. It's kind of like sitting on an airplane. You, you sit on an airplane, you don't sit there and hold the life preserver the whole flight. What are you doing? Well, I'm holding this. Why? We're going to go down. When we go down, I'm ready. Well, just keep it under your seat. No, I ain't letting go of this. Uh-uh. You got the thing around your neck, it's all blown up. <laughs> now, that'd be kind of strange, but if you know that the engines are out and the stewardess has come on and said some things and a flight attendant, you're, you, you'll have that thing on in a heartbeat. And the clock's ticking. And there will be an accounting. And we, we, we hold on to this and, 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 and we, we recognize we need this. And I have to tell you, there's nothing more humbling than wearing one of those things around your neck. The flight attendants look so weird every time they put those things on. It's not even fashionable. I don't even know how you walk around with this big yellow thing around your neck. It's humbling. And, and everyone loses all sense of order on an airplane when, when there's fear. You know, I, I remember one time a helicopter almost hit our plane as we were coming into Burbank, and we had to pull up real quick, and people were screaming, and this woman is just, and I'm, I'm saying, she's, why are you so, I just said, I, I'm ready. I'm immortal until God's done with me. My name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It was a great opportunity to minister. One woman's come back, she was frightened. Michelle was with me. She's just scared to death walking down, and she stops. She didn't even know me. It was a black lady. She grabbed me. She said, would you pray for me? I said, you got it, sure. I thought that was really sweet. She said, I'm really scared. I said, I'll pray for you, and I did. Michelle and I prayed for her. It's a realization that you need God. You need a Savior. That life preserver is important. But the room's divided. The room's divided between those of you who believe you don't need it and those of you who know you do. And that's what I love about Luke 2, Matthew 2. You see, God appeared at night, and who do you appear to? The light didn't shine over Parliament or Number 10 Downing Street or the White House or over Caesar's Palace. The light was shown to shepherds lowly, undeserving, neglected. These were folks that throughout the history of Israel, there, there had been in the history of Israel um, the concept that shepherding was a noble profession. I mean, you had Abel who was a, a shepherd and, and uh, Isaac was a shepherd, Abraham was a shepherd, Jacob was a shepherd, Moses was a shepherd, David was a shepherd. And God called himself a shepherd right? It was a noble profession. He called us sheep. I don't, I don't know if that's a compliment. <laughs> right? But by the time you come to the first century where we see these shepherds guarding their flock at, at night, by the time we come to the first century, uh, shepherding has lost its luster. Um, these shepherds were the lowest class of people, and they, they came in just ahead of lepers. It was written in the Talmud, in the collection of interpretations of the insights of the rabbis. It was said of shepherds, no help is to be given to heathen or shepherds. They were not a very beloved group of folks. They had issues, and these issues were numerous to, to say. Uh, I, I like what one author says. He says, in order to understand how unusual it was to have the angels appear to these lowly shepherds, you need to learn about them a bit. And he wrote these things. He said, Consider, they were considered ceremonially, ceremonially unclean because of the nature of their work. They were unable to attend religious services. So, here they're outcasts, they're, they're lowly. They were isolated and forgotten. 
because their flocks needed to move around to find new grass and fresh water, and they never stayed in one place for long. They were treated with contempt and mistrust. They were suspected of stealing from others and would often confuse thine with mine. Their testimony was never allowed in court because they were so unreliable. They were known to be brash and bold. Living out in the fields away from society made them unappealing to most people. Most of them had foul mouths and were ready to fight at the drop of a hat. The shepherds that night, though, were changed forever. Just think about this group of folks, lowly, undeserving, neglected. But the things that we see in the passage that are fascinating to me is that in Luke 2.9, the shepherds were awed. They were blown away by the Lord. Uh, the, the, the angels spoke and they were paralyzed by fear. They were in awe. And, and also in Luke 2.9, they accepted this good news. When it says good news, the word ulongelion is where we get the word evangelize. It's where you share the good news that God has come to forgive man. That's the center theme of the gospel. He's come to forgive man. Luke 10, or excuse me, Luke 2, 10 through 15, they acted upon what was true. It was one of those things that as you, you look at the passage, you're, you're blown away by their response to the gospel. It says, then the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, and this is what's so cool is they accepted the news, but they acted upon it. They said, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which is the Lord has made known to all of us. So they acted upon it. And then they adored him in 16. It says, and they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. They just marveled at him. They were, they were touched by it. They accepted the gift. They acted on it. They adored him. They were in awe of him. And I, I think about this. This is the real Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. Most amazing birth announcement, astronomically, astrologically. And, and, and you look at it and you think, God... What does it mean to me? Well, the idea is we, like the shepherds, must come to Christ. And the Bible says you must humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he'll lift you up. That's the toughest thing for mankind. And we, we just struggle with this concept of being guilty. And, and we're prideful. My mother never would say she was wrong. The sweet lady she'd say she was wrong, but she'd never let the words leave her mouth. She'd just do some sort of movement with her face. And I would give her the benefit of the doubt. But have you ever met those folks? They just, even for them to try, I was, I was, and Jim Carrey, I was, because you're going to expose your failure. Man, that chips away at you, doesn't it? It just hurts makes you frustrated. You get angry. But listen, why would you need a savior if you're not wrong? Why would you need a savior if the plane's not going down? Why would you need a savior if there's no hell? Why would Jesus have to die? He did. And you do. You need a savior. But that's going to require humility. 
Corey Tenboom said, if Jesus were born 1,000 times in Bethlehem, but not in me, I would still be lost. If Jesus were born a thousand times in Bethlehem, but not in me, I would still be lost. I want to conclude this morning's message by just simply saying to all of you that here you have in Revelation 12 an astronomical and astrological birth announcement that is phenomenal and unbelievable and appears to the shepherds at night and the magi a pagan group of people so moved by the sign that they're drawn and it's fascinating that they would look up at the night sky to find their bearing and we look down to a man-made device we're trapped in the web and the net god says look up you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free that there is a christ child who came to die in your place for the propitiation of your sins, that his righteousness would be put on your account. But he only comes to the lowly. He only comes to those who are marginalized and, and neglected. He only comes to the humble. And he comes into the darkness of your soul. As you walk in, in that darkness, you've seen a great light. And there's a Savior. And he was born. And that birth announcement declared it. But unless he's born in you, by receiving, as we saw in Romans 3, receiving by faith, to say, God, I need you. Jesus, you came to die in my place to pay the penalty for my sins. I receive you as my Savior. You need to make sure that Jesus is born in you. Oh, he was born. But it only matters if he's born in you. The Bible says you must be born again. People struggle over that term. I didn't come up with it. The Lord did. Born again, the trichotomy of man, body, soul, and spirit. Soma, psyche, and pneuma. You were born physically through your mother's womb. But the idea is to be born again. The idea is to be born again, to be born of the spirit. That God would take up residence in your life. That that birth announcement would be your new birth. That Christ was born in Bethlehem and now he's going to be born in you. You receive that by faith. It's not for lack of evidence. You need to love him more than your sin. You need to love him more than your justification of your failure. You need to humbly acknowledge that you need a savior. Nothing to be ashamed of. And the beauty of it is that in Christ is the fullness of joy. Joy transforms your circumstances by changing your perspective that God controls the heavens and allows a star, a comet, to fall on a little town in Bethlehem upon a home to announce the birth of your Savior and mine. Yes, it was for all the people, but for you. He said to the shepherds, and he says to you and me, it's for you. He was born, but he needs to be born in you. And that happens when you, by faith, receive Christ as your Savior. You acknowledge, I need him. You say, Jesus, save me. And he does. Lord Jesus, help me, he does. It's as simple as professing that Christ is my savior. He was born into the world and now he's born in me. And I am a new creature in Christ. I get my bearing, my orientation and my alignment from the Lord as he gives us that star to guide us through the darkness of this world. And today, today, this third week of Advent, the joy is yours.
in Christ, Christ in you, is the fullness of joy. He was born, but today he must be born in you. As the worship team gets ready to come up, as they're heading up, what I'm going to ask is, I'm going to lead you in prayer. I did this first service. I want to do it in this service. I was really blessed because there was a young man from Australia that I'd had a chance to meet, and he'd had a rocky road in his life, and I didn't know everything about him, but I'd given this opportunity to receive Christ, to allow Christ to be born in him, and he raised his hand to receive the Lord. And the idea that that fullness of joy would touch his life. And listen, you may feel as though I'm the last person God wants. That's why he chose the shepherds, to show you he's the first one. He wanted you more than anybody else. He aligned everything to bring you here today that you would receive him and he would be born in you. What I'll do is I'll lead you in prayer and at the end of that prayer, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to respond by faith. Faith is an action. It's gonna be real simple. I'm gonna say, if you wanna receive Christ as your savior, you raise your hand. Everybody's eyes will be closed. Everybody's heads will be bowed. It's not a public spectacle. I'm not gonna make you come up here and do a dance. But you need to have an act of faith and that's gonna be you raising your hand to testify, Jesus is born in me. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for the epic, astronomical, and astrological birth announcement that you put before the earth to declare that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, was born in Bethlehem. The Magi knew it. The shepherds saw it, and they both responded with exceedingly great joy. And today is the third week of Advent. This is the joy of the Lord. That Christ has come into the world to save sinners. And God, I'm one of those. And I need a Savior. And you've given us yourself. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that your scriptures declare who you are. That you're a God of mercy, a God of grace, and a God of justice. And we're grateful how you've touched our lives. You're going to cast our sin as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. We're new creatures in Christ, but we must come in humility. We're not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. It's a power unto salvation for all who would believe. Now as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, Christ was born in Bethlehem, but today he's to be born in you. It's going to require an act of faith. So as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, you want to receive Christ as your Savior, make this the most amazing Christmas you've ever known. And the joy of the Lord will fill your heart, cleanse you of all unrighteousness. If you want to receive Christ as your, your Savior, this is the act of faith right now. I, I want you to raise your hand right now. Put it up. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you and you and you and you. God bless you here. God bless you all back there. God bless you, both of you. Amen. You can put your hands down. I want to assure you that if I didn't see your hand, the joy is God did. The Bible says the angels in heaven rejoice. They're having great joy. Christ died for you. And you responded by faith. And you are now a new creature in Christ. And we rejoice that you have been born again because Christ was born in you. Lord, thank you for those who by faith received you this day. We rejoice with the angels and we're so grateful to be in your presence. Bless your people now. Establish these folks in their heart for you. We praise you and thank you for Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.